Please take your Bibles with me now to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, as we continue the argument of the author of Hebrews to promote and exalt the, the supremacy of Christ over all people and all things. And today we're going to see how Jesus is greater than Moses. So uh, Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6, let's read together. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You may be seated, and children at this time can be dismissed to Children's Church. You know who you are, if that's you. For the rest of us, as we think about this text, uh, it's six verses of Hebrews. And uh, there was some back and forth, some debate this week as to how, whether or not I would get through all six verses or cut that short and preach a portion of this argument about Jesus being greater than Moses. And uh, I decided to take all six verses. And the more that you dig, the more that you find. And so I, we should be done, I think, sometime before the evening service starts tonight, thankfully. Uh, but hopefully, uh, as I pray that the Lord will do, he will be faithful and gracious and give us attention and give us uh, the mental capacity to take this in and understand it and, uh, and be changed by it. So let me pray for us. Father, as we come to you now and, and uh, anticipate hearing from you, from your word, um, as you are still speaking, you're speaking now and you're speaking constantly through your word to us. We want to hear from you and we want to be informed. We want to be taught where we have limited understanding and we want to have our eyes lifted up so that we might see more clearly the glory of Christ in his supremacy as our high priest, as our redeemer, as the God-man, the only one who is sufficient and able to save sinners, and the one who is exalted now on high in glory for what he has accomplished and for who he is. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be faithful to us to do that, to, to let these truths settle down and absorb into our hearts so that it might actually change us as we understand it and as we live in light of these truths. And we just pray, Lord, that you do that work that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. As I <clears throat> looked at the argument of this text, of these verses in Hebrews 3, um, I 
thought of the popular expression to keep calm and carry on. You may have seen it. It's kind of ubiquitous at this point. It's everywhere. It's on coffee mugs. It's on t-shirts. It's on backpacks. It's on your social media feed. It's everywhere. Keep calm and carry on. And I thought of it because the point of this text is to consider Jesus, to consider Jesus, and to hold fast to him. Okay? So consider Jesus and carry on in your faith. And as I thought about that saying, to keep calm and to carry on, I wasn't sure where it came from, first of all. I kind of thought it was maybe in the same vein of uh, some self-talk, self-help, you know, self-therapy ideas. Like, you know, just get those negative people out of your life. They're causing chaos, and you don't need them. So just move on from them. Keep calm. Carry on. But actually, when I dug into it, uh, it, it was a much better and much more interesting uh, origin and meaning. The iconic Keep Calm and Carry On poster was designed in 1939 by Britain's Ministry of Information. This was months before the Second World War would begin, and the intention was so that the people of Britain would be encouraged, would be steadfast, would be uh, obstinate against the enemy, and that the enemy would see this uh, this. Uh, attitude of calmness and just being able to carry on in the face of war and that it would be a deterrent to the enemy and an encouragement to the people toward their victory. The, uh, the, the poster, though a couple million copies were printed, it was never actually released to the public and it was largely forgot about until rediscovered in uh, 2001 and now it's everywhere. But the idea of keeping calm and carrying on while similar, is not necessarily sufficient for us as it applies to our faith. Because uh, while we need a message of carrying on, of keeping on in the faith and keeping going and not giving up, what will keep us calm? What will help us to actually remain calm and do that? Not to turn away, not to give up our faith, but to actually have courage and carry on. To keep believing and walking by faith until the very end. What will encourage us to do that? Well, it's not going to be someone telling us to stay calm. Just calm down, right? Have you tried that with somebody? How well does that work? Just calm down. What do you mean, calm down? And I'm not going to calm down until you take care of the things that are making me uncalm, right? And so we have this this, uh, unhelpful, maybe, instruction to just calm down. Well, thank you for telling me. I wasn't sure what I should do in this situation. Okay, so that's not going to help. And it's also not our own courage or resolve to simply remain faithful and steadfast. It's not up to us, and we don't have that kind of power to be able to do that. It's also not, even though it's a good thing, our camaraderie together, our encouragement of one another as we stand shoulder to shoulder to carry on in faith. That by itself, while good and helpful, is not enough. Only Jesus is enough. And so that's exactly what the author does here. He tells us, he tells Christians, he tells the church to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Now, what does it mean to actually consider Jesus? Well, first of all, it's an imperative. It's a command to us from the Spirit of God through this author of Hebrews. That's something we must do. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not optional. It's a command. And it is a lot like 
the warnings and commands that we've already heard. There's an urgency in these commands that are in Hebrews. There's a, there's a, a sense of warning in these commands. And it's like what we saw in chapter 2, verse 1. Pay much closer attention, or the implication is there will be consequences. You will not be prepared to deal with persecution and trial that could draw you away. The command for us to consider Jesus is a command to think. Now that's interesting because um, what is thinking? Thinking, I'm afraid, may be a lost art in our society. And I don't say that uh, as, as though it is universal and applies to everybody. And I don't say that certainly as someone who is arrogant and, and as though I am the one who, you know, thinks well and everyone else is missing it. But I think we struggle for a variety of reasons to actually think and to contemplate and to meditate and to consider as we are instructed to do here in Hebrews. To think about who Jesus is, what he's already done, what he continues to do, and what he will do in the future, which is what we're being instructed to consider. Is thinking a lost art? What are the challenges for us today that prevent us from actually thinking in this way, actually considering? Well, first of all, thinking requires effort, right? Thinking is, is not uh, necessarily always an easy thing to do. It requires discipline. It's, there's self-discipline in actually considering Jesus in the way that we are supposed to here. Thinking also requires time. And who has time for sitting down and actually thinking about something in this way? Think about how we rush from idea to idea, from uh, moment to moment, as our, as our calendars lead us often, and we uh, are, are just flooded with bits and blurbs of information from all angles and all directions. And there are things that contribute, certainly, to, to that unhealthy um, pace and, and way of life whereby we don't really spend time thinking about much of anything. We're trained, I think, especially by social media to engage with so many ideas that they have to be brief. They can't help but being, you know, not more than one or two sentences or a short paragraph. We don't have time for that because we have to fit so much else in. And the, the reality is that one idea... For that to, we don't have time for that to sit and permeate, for us to understand the ins and outs of it, to make sure we fully comprehend what it's saying and are able to actually apply it to our lives and see does it fit within a biblical worldview, etc. Because soon, before we have time for that, it's pushed out and shoved aside by the next idea. So I wonder if we really do a good job thinking, especially when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to the Word of God. When it comes to what we need, what's essential for life and faith. We don't have time to think. We'll just Google it, right? We have Google and we have YouTube, and so we don't have to think, really. Someone else can do the thinking for us. Some people can't imagine having to problem solve and think through things and come up with solutions without the Internet. But some of us know what that was like. And uh, some of us maybe had the, the uh, trusty set of encyclopedias, you know, with that stale smell because they sat on the shelf too much without being used. Or we had a sage of a, of a parent or a grandparent that we could consult 
you know, who had a lot of information and wisdom. Uh, but the point is, other people can't always do the thinking for you. We can't simply rely on other people to do the thinking or the considering, especially when it comes to Jesus. You must do the considering so that you don't fall away. Here we encounter some Bible clarity on the relationship between the mind and the hands, between what we think and what we do. For it's true, we can see it in Scripture, that we are what we think. You've heard the expression, you are what you eat. That may also be true in some regard, but it's true in a biblical sense that we are what we think. As you think in your heart, so are you. That's who you are. And also, according to the abundance of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so as we think and what we believe actually shapes us and conditions and determines what we do. So we can't underestimate the value of our minds in the Christian life. Because as we think, so we are what we behold, we become. So, Romans 12, we are to be transformed. And how are we to be transformed into what we ought to be? By the renewing of our minds. And so the author, understanding that, says, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. But what about him? First of all, we need to see in the author's logical argument about the greatness of Jesus over Moses, that Jesus was faithful like Moses. Okay, so first of all, Jesus' faithfulness. And this is, the argument is that, that the author's going to make a comparison and a contrast between Jesus and Moses. And he begins, maybe not in the way that we would expect, he actually begins by comparing them as though they are the same, saying there is a likeness between the two. So look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. So here we have a comparison. Just as Moses was faithful, Jesus is faithful. So they are like each other. We see two offices, by the way, that Jesus fulfills that we don't want to skip over because this is the Jesus that we are to consider. Who is he? First of all, he is an apostle. Now, this might also come as a surprise to us. And in fact, this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is called an apostle. We're very familiar with Jesus having apostles and those apostles being uh, determined by the fact that they are sent out by him. They are commissioned by Jesus for his purposes. But Jesus himself is an apostle, as we see here. The apostle, uh, the word apostle meaning literally a sent one. And was Jesus a sent one? Absolutely. Look at what he says in his high priestly prayer in John 17. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus is an apostle. He is a sent one from God to us. Also in Hebrews 1-2, in these last days he has spoken to us, God has spoken to us, not by the prophets of the Old Testament, but by his Son. Jesus indeed is an apostle and a prophet sent by God to us with the message of God. He is sent to reveal the Father to us and his love and to accomplish redemption. So as an apostle, you see there the, the, the definition of an apostle. 
someone who represents God to men and speaks and acts on his behalf. So an apostle is one who operates in this direction, from God to us. But he is also called a high priest. While he is an apostle in the truest sense and the greatest apostle that ever was, he is also our high priest. This is not a new idea to us. We just saw that last week in chapter 2. He is the high priest who had to, been make, had to have been made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest making propitiation for the sins of the people. The author, of course, is going to spend several chapters talking about how Jesus is the great high priest, and he's going to expand on that. But it's undoubted, uh, it's, it's beyond argument for us to see that he is the high priest. And how he is the high priest is that he now represents us to God. So now we have the direction, the vertical direction, from below to above. And so Jesus, the apostle, represents God to us, speaks to us from God. And now he speaks to God from us on our behalf as our representative. He is the mediator between God and men. Now, how is he qualified to be both apostle and high priest, both speaking from God to us and both representing us to God? It is because he is both God and man. In his humanity, he's able to be a sufficient representative, a high priest representing us to God, but in a sinless way. And in his divinity, he can sufficiently represent God to us. Jesus, the apostle and the high priest. Now, Moses is not called here an apostle or a high priest, but he clearly functioned in the same roles. He was sent to represent God to the people to speak on his behalf. He was sent to deliver them from the bondage of Egypt, and he was sent to give them his law. That is as an apostle. And then he was also clearly a representative of the people to God, bringing their need and their uh, request before God, speaking on their behalf, and acted kind of as a priest even before the priesthood was established. In his faithfulness, we see that Moses is given a commendation. And so in the argument that Jesus is greater than Moses, maybe it's surprising to see that the author doesn't diminish Moses. He says Moses is faithful. He gives Moses an accolade. And the point is that as Moses is faithful, he is given uh, glory, a measure of glory. He doesn't have to be diminished in order to make Christ look great. He is recognized as having glory as a faithful servant. He was faithful in all God's house, verse 2 says. Now, what about God's house? This is a prominent theme in this, uh, in this paragraph. And so uh, the word house is used seven times here. And we need to understand what does it mean that Moses was faithful in God's house? What is the author speaking of? What is God's house? Maybe the tabernacle comes to mind. As we've just come through Exodus, that's fresh. Uh, and the tabernacle was the, the house of God, right? A place for his dwelling, a, pr a place where he would meet with the people. Um, and certainly Moses was faithful to oversee the, the construction of that house and the function in that house. But more significantly, I think we see here that the house is more 
better understood as a household. And so the house of God that Moses was faithful in is actually the people of God. It's people. And that's not a shocking revelation for us as we think about the household of God. As we'll see in a minute, we also are the house of God. So, it is the people of God. So just as Moses was faithful in God's house, so was Jesus. Now, as he makes the argument for Jesus' superiority over Moses, he's going to show that while Moses had a glory for being faithful, Jesus is super exalted in his glory. So now we see Jesus greater than Moses. Faithful like Moses, yes, but Jesus greater than Moses. The argument for the supremacy of Christ would be especially significant to the original recipients of this letter, who we don't know a lot about, but we do know that they are Hebrew Christians. We do know that they are under some form of persecution, and uh, they, as Jewish people, as descendants of uh, Abraham, and under uh, you know, people who received the Old Covenant under Moses and the law, this would be an important argument that was necessary for them to understand because they could have been tempted under persecution to fall away from Christ and turn back to Moses and the law, the old covenant. Moses was a hero to them and a great prophet. So just as they needed to know that Jesus was superior to angels, they needed to know that Jesus also was superior and worth trusting in and holding on to even over Moses. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. So, Jesus, apostle, high priest, faithful to him who appointed him, Moses also faithful. For Jesus, why consider Jesus? Because, verse 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So now we see an illustration, an illustration that explains why Jesus is more glorious than Moses. But it's not just an illustration, it's also an explanation. It really answers the question by itself. And as much as it, as it is an illustration, it's also just a plain fact. And we'll see that. First of all, Jesus is more glorious than uh, Moses because he is the builder of the house. The accountant has crunched the numbers and determined that Jesus is worthy of more glory. So, first of all, we see this general principle here in verse 3. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. How much more glory? As much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Now, this is not uh, really difficult to understand, is it? Why would we attribute glory and honor and worth and wisdom and power to a building, right? A building that did not build itself. It has no power to will or produce itself into existence, and so it would be foolish to look at a house and attribute this honor to the house itself. The house may have beauty, but it didn't create that beauty. It didn't create that quality of being aesthetically pleasing. And so we attribute instead the glory to the one who built the house. Now, I'm more or less building a house. And 
In that case, I'm not sure if the house or the builder is worthy of much glory. But when Ross Construction builds a house and it's displayed in the parade of homes, people can go and see that very clearly the builder is worthy of some glory for the quality product, right? It's not a difficult concept. And then in parentheses we see in verse 4, for every house is built by someone. Well, that's obvious. We know that houses don't just appear randomly and magically without someone taking time to design it, to, to get the materials and put it together, right? It doesn't happen by itself. Every house has a builder. Why does this need to be said? Maybe you can think of some reasons why people need to hear this. Every house has a builder. Do we attribute some things to nothing, to chance, to random events? Many reject the builder of the universe, the natural world. They reject the builder and creator of their own body. They say, not this house. Sure, maybe the houses that we reside in were built by someone, but not this house. Not this house, not the universe, not this house. Not my body, not me. It was chance. It was random. It has no meaning. It's purposeless, therefore, because there was no designer. There was no design. Therefore, they get rid of the one who deserves the glory for building the house and continue on as to the best of their ability in, a, in an empty and ignorant nihilism. So, Maybe it is important that this statement is made, although it seems so obvious to us. The reality is that we should look at something that has been made and has been constructed in a beautiful and wise way and say, who did this? Who is responsible for this? So that we can recognize the Creator and give Him glory. The product that they made proves that they are praiseworthy. The builder gets the glory for what he's done. Now, as we see further on in verse 4, the illustration gets personal. Because we're told who the builder is. And this is the implication of the whole argument. The builder is God. The builder of all things is God. Jesus is greater than Moses because although Moses was faithful in God's house, Jesus built the house. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And in building the house of which Moses was a part... Because remember, this is the people of God. Jesus built Moses. Jesus made Moses. And so there's really no comparison. Jesus is the builder of the house. We say, well, it says God is the builder of the house. But that's the argument. It's a logical progression. It's another way of saying that Jesus, as the builder, who has more glory than Moses, is God. He is God himself. As creator... Not only of all things, but also the house. Jesus deserves more glory. Now the author introduces another difference that helps us to see why Jesus is greater than Moses. And the argument now moves from uh, the building of the house, the place of, of responsibility in the house, to a relationship to the master of the house. And so first we see that Jesus is a son, and Moses is a servant. So Jesus now, greater than Moses because he's the builder of the house itself, 
the builder of Moses. And now we see that Jesus is more glorious because he is a son. Verses 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. As a son. Now in these two verses, in verses 5 and 6, let's look carefully because I see three contrasting pairs of words that indicate for us how Jesus is better than Moses. First of all, we see the, the contrasting pair of titles. Moses is a servant, but Jesus is a son. And what's the difference between a son and a servant? I don't think many of us have a lot of context for understanding what that's like, because as far as I know, none of us have servants. Maybe some of you feel like your parents treat you or treated you as though you were servants. Look at all these extra workers we have. Okay? But we don't have children and also servants, as maybe, maybe you do. We can, I'd like to talk about that afterward, see what that's like. Okay? But we don't have servants. We don't know what that's like. But we can uh, imagine and we can examine from another text of Scripture what servanthood might be like. What are the characteristics of being a servant and not a son? So John fifteen fifteen, Jesus, talking to his disciples, says... No longer do I call you servants, because the servant does not know what his master is doing. Now, I do want to clarify this word servant. You may be familiar with, with most of the time when the New Testament uses this word. It is the Greek word doulos. And that is really accurately translated as a bond servant, as a slave. But actually, in Hebrews... It's not the same word. It's a different word, which is only used in Hebrews. And it means something a little bit more tender, a little bit more relational. Um, and it means that he is, is someone who is like a, an attendant, a personal attendant of the master. And it also implies personal service freely rendered instead of service by force, mandatory, whether one is willing or not. However... The principle still applies because the servant does not have the rights and the privileges that a son has. There is a difference in relationship. And that's the point that's being made by the author here. The servant is not privy to all of the knowledge of what the master is doing. Now, did Moses, as a servant, have information? Did Moses receive special revelation from God? Yes, much in, 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 and it affected a lot of his life and his function. He received all the revelation of the Old Covenant promises, the law, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system. All this came to the house of God through Moses. He was the recipient. Yet, all of these things were types, representations, shadows, cast backward in time from the glory of Christ on the cross to the old covenant people. And the son someday would fulfill all of those requirements and all of those types and be the reality of the illustrations that were given in the old co uh, covenant. He would obey the law. He would make atonement. He would be the perfect high priest. He would be the sacrifice himself in his own body. 
and he would establish a new covenant and a better covenant. So Moses was given revelation from God, but he didn't have all the information. He didn't see how it would all play out, and he didn't see the Son. Moses, the servant, as we see in verse 5, testified to the things that were to be spoken later. Things spoken by God through his Son, through Christ. The Son, in comparison to the servant, knows what the Father is doing. He knows what the Master is doing. He has all that information because the Master is his Father. And not only is the Master his Father, he is one with the Master because he is God like him, co-equal, co-eternal. And he was there when the covenant of redemption was decreed among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit he was there before the foundation of the world when the plan was put in place. And so he has all the information of the master, of the father, because he is not just a servant, he's the son. So that's the first difference I see. The second contrasting pair of words is was and is. The verbs there that are maybe little, maybe easy to pass over, but I think they're meaningful. Moses was faithful in God's house. But Moses died. Moses' ministry ended. Hebrews 8, 6, comparing ministries. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as much more as the uh, covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. So Jesus was not only faithful in what he accomplished in his incarnation, but he continues to be faithful he is, Moses was, he is faithful because his ministry is not done. Hebrews 7.25 talks about the ministry of Christ that he's still performing. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is ministering now while redemption is accomplished he is still interceding for us. He lives. We serve a, a risen Savior who stands before the throne of the Father in his glorified, resurrected body with still uh, visible scars showing and proving that the work of redemption has been accomplished, that justifica justification has been accomplished, and he stands there interceding for us on our behalf, even as the accuser of the brothers accuses us and challenges that reality. Jesus' ministry wasn't just in the past. It still is. Moses couldn't do that, nor was he ever intended to do that. Only the beloved Son, in whom the Father is well pleased. The final contrasting pair of words I see are the two prepositions, in and over. Moses was faithful in the house. Jesus is faithful over the house, which communicates a superiority and an authority that Moses never had. Moses, faithful in the house. Christ, faithful over the house. By the way, you see that title there? The word Christ? Hebrews has not used that word, that title for Christ, yet until this point. And so now we see it. He is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the, uh, the, the one who would atone for sin. Okay, And so that's significant to see who he is by his title. 
And Christ is faithful over God's house. Moses was in the house as one of many members, right? But he was part of the house. He was one of the people who God made to be his house. And he had the same quality and the same value as the other sinners who were part of the house. Christ, however, is over the house of God with as much more authority and as much better quality and as much more value as the builder is over the house, as the creator is over the creature. And so he is worthy of more glory. Here's the implication that comes home to roost for us. What does he say next? Christ is faithful over God's house as his son, and we are his house. We are his house. By the way, just to remind you, the author is writing to the church, to a church persecuted, a church in a different generation than we are, nevertheless the church. And so generations later, he is writing to us. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, <clears throat> when we think about this reality that we are his house, it looks like the author has jumped from a time past, right, where Moses was serving in the house, to now the time present where we see the house as the church, as we know it today in the New Testament. We don't have time, unfortunately, to deal with all the nuance of passing from the old covenant people of God to the new covenant people of God and what the differences are, what the discontinuity is between those two times and places, those two peoples, or if they really are two peoples in, an, in a really uh, meaningful way. But the point is, of the author, the point is to prove not discontinuity, but continuity concerning who is included in the house of God. So we're going to see how the people that were included in the house of God then are the same as the people who are included in the house of God now. And I believe that argument is clear from this book, but also this passage. So who is God's household? Well, first, as we skipped over some of verse 1, look back to verse 1. Who is he writing to? Who is the house of God? Holy brothers and those who share in a heavenly calling. So, holy brothers, those who are sanctified, those who are set apart already by the ministry of the high priest, you are the people who are included in the house of God. And you who share in a heavenly calling. And a calling that comes from heaven calls us back to heaven so it is those that are on the trajectory of being uh, going from earth to heaven to be with God. Citizens of heaven although we're not there yet. So this is the house of God. Holy brothers, which by the way we, we talk about God being holy but we talk, do we talk about each other in that way? That you are my holy brothers and sisters, you uh, who share in this heavenly calling I think we would do well to see ourselves that way because that's part of the point is that someone who God has called holy and made holy, he's not going to revoke that calling and that holiness. 
Nevertheless, these are the people that, that are being talked about here. These are the people who are in the house. And then we see, in verse 6, a conditional statement. And Hebrews is full of these types of statements. Warnings that carry a sense of urgency and even condition. You are only his house, church, if you hold fast your confidence and your boasting in your hope. Now, maybe that leaves us a little unsettled because we don't maybe know what to do with that. It's very sobering and it's very startling if we say it's almost like questioning whether or not we are in, right? That's the kind of the way it seems. You will reach this heavenly calling. You are his house if you hold fast your hope. So, what do we do with this warning, this conditional statement? We at least know that we assent to and agree with the fact that uh, we have eternal security, right? That's a biblical idea that we agree with. We know that once saved, always saved. God's not going to, you know, go back on his promise. He's gonna, not going to take back the atonement that was performed by Christ on the cross. And we also know that we're not saved by our works. We, we've established that, right? We cannot do anything to save ourselves and accomplish our salvation. So we know that. So this can't be saying that our holding fast in faith and making it to the end as redeemed people depends on us. We know that we can't say that. So what do we do with this condition statement? First of all, I want us to see that it's a litmus test for true faith. This is a test. This is a means for examining yourself to see what kind of fruit there is. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. And by the way, faith without works is dead. And so we want to test the quality of our faith. And at times we need to. And so we can see that holding fast to Christ and not drifting away, not giving up and turning back, that is a necessary quality of someone who is saved. Jesus himself said that only the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. You cannot claim faith in Christ and begin with your hand at the plow and then look back and give up and turn away. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Demas, who loved this present world. Okay, so it's a litmus test for our faith. And faith that is true and genuine and saving will persevere to the end. It will endure. It will not give up and it will not walk away. Secondly, we should see that this warning, this condition, is actually a means of grace for our endurance, for our perseverance. And we should see it that way. It says, essentially, if you are actually in Christ, you will carry on. And to the Christian who hears that and takes it seriously, becomes a little bit more sober, they will persevere and carry on. They will cling more closely to Christ because they believe it and then they will live it. We know that this doesn't happen by our own strength, our own power. It is the Spirit of God using this warning as a catalyst, as a truth that transforms as it affects our mind and then our action of faith. So we should see this as a means God uses to make us more serious, to make us more affectionate, and to make us more faithful as we cling to Christ and let the rest burn. 
There's also, we see here, the continuity between the house Moses served in and the house that exists now that we are familiar with, the church. Only those who endure to the end will be saved. It was no different then than it is now. In case we imagine that, that Israel, just by their very ethnicity, were all included in the promises of God and all reached, ultimately, his rest. That's what the author says next, as we'll see next week. They didn't all make it. Not all Israel is Israel, Paul tells us. Only those united to God by faith, whose faith continues to the end and is proved by the way they live, by their conduct, only those people are saved, both then and now. If we look further down in chapter 3, we can look at verse 15. Look at what the author says about a generation in Moses' day, under the old covenant, under the law, having received all of the gifts of God through Moses, through the covenant. Verse 15 of chapter 3, As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, another warning, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What rebellion? For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses, and with whom he was provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. He continues in chapter 4, verse 2, For good news came to them, came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So faith is the necessary condition that saw someone being part of the house of God that actually made it, that didn't fall away because of unbelief. Not all of Moses' uh, household made it, right? Not all of the people who were simply born in Jewish ethnicity made it to the heavenly calling, but fell away. Jewish ethnicity didn't guarantee salvation then, just as participating in church does not guarantee salvation now. It depends all on faith that lasts. So we must hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope to the end. And what is our hope in? Our hope is in Jesus. Consider Jesus. Jesus is our hope. If we are those who are to share in this heavenly calling, if we are the holy brothers and sisters, then we must walk through this life as those who before us shared in that calling. We see what it looks like to have this heavenly calling. In Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. If we are to keep believing, if we are to keep on this path of faith in the trajectory of reaching the heavenly calling called from heaven to heaven 
then we must continue on in faith. We must not turn back to anything that would turn us aside, to anything that's, that's after our hearts, pulling at our affections and our desires. Consider Jesus. Hold fast to him and your confession of him. Look at that in verse 1. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And what do we confess? We confess him, that he is sufficient, that he truly is the high priest that we need, the sacrifice that we need that truly takes our sin away. And we hold fast to him. He delivered us from slavery to the fear of death. He is our high priest who made propitiation for our sin, removing the wrath of God that was against us. He is the one who suffered some temptation in our place, like us as a man, but overcame it, and he will help us overcome. He is the glorious builder of us, the house of God, where he dwells. And we must consider him and pay much closer attention so that we do not drift away. I don't know what's tempting you, what may be tempting you this morning. What's a common area or avenue of temptation and testing in your life that could tempt you to drift away from the faith that you once placed in Christ. I don't know what's eating away at your hope in Christ alone. What, what's tempting you to let go of him and cling to? Um, but a question for us to evaluate ourselves is, what is our hope in now? Or better yet, what causes our hope to shake, to be threatened? There's our answer of what's tempting us to drift away. What threatens our hope? Financial struggles? Illness? Injury? A failure to realize and experience all the hopes and dreams and the way that we thought our life would be at one point? Perhaps it's a prodigal son or daughter. Perhaps it's any other manifestation of the fear of death. Whatever it is that's challenging our hope, making it shaky, it's tarnishing and, and drifting us away slowly from the hope that we have in Christ. Consider Jesus. If you have Jesus, you have all that you need. If it's true that God is not withholding anything that we need from us, but has given us everything in Christ, all the promises of God, yes and amen in him, then whatever you don't have today that's threatening to steal your joy and hope away from Christ is something you don't truly need. We have to be able to see that turn away from the things that are really becoming idols. It's idolatry to put our hope in anything but Christ. Even though at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, we see him. We see him, the son, the glorious builder of the house, whose house we are if we hold fast to our hope in him, our one high priest, our one answer for our sin, the one who has already borne the wrath of God in his body on the tree. We see him, and as we consider him, we will remain in him, in his house, faithful. We're going to take time now to see him 
in this visible and tangible representation of his body and blood as we commune together. We see him in his priestly work, in his incarnation, in his sacrifice for sinners. And we are his house. Look at what God says about us being built on the foundation, Ephesians 2, of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. That's who we are. The people of God, the house of God where he dwells. He lives in us. And it's only possible by what's represented in these elements a sacrifice. A sacrifice that first lived a sinless life and gives us his record of righteousness. And a sacrifice that was sufficient by the shedding of his own blood offered to take away our guilt, our debt, and declare us righteous before God. I want to challenge us and encourage us with Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 19 about our high priest and what he's accomplished for us and and an encouragement for us to continue in this life of faith together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we are together to encourage one another to consider Jesus our high priest and our confession of him, that he alone is God, Savior, Lord. He is sufficient for us. And as we draw near, we draw near in a special way this morning through this gracious gift of the elements that remind us of the body and the blood of Christ, broken, shed for us, that both unite us to God and bind us together as his people, as his house. The Lord's Supper is this gracious gift that helps us to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Draw near and receive the grace necessary to persevere, to keep going. Don't give up in your faith. Hold fast and do not fall away.